number of years ago, I heard a story about a woman that uh, was making the rounds of garage sales in her neighborhood, and uh, she came across a book table uh, with a book that had an intriguing title on the spine. Uh, there, inscribed were the words, How to Hug. Uh, and she thought, that's, uh, that's marvelous. I've been looking for a book like that all my life. Uh, <laughs> I've heard that uh, we should give and receive at least one hug every day, and uh, so now I'll know how to do that appropriately. So she bought the book, brought it home, only to discover that she had purchased one volume of the Encyclopedia Britannica from H-O-W to H-U-G. <laughs> well, uh, she was disappointed, of course, and, and we would be too. Uh, there really ought to be a book uh, with that title and that content, and actually there is. And uh, in part, it's the text that we want to look at uh, this morning, Exodus 21, 23 uh, to 23, 13. Uh, there's a vast amount of material here, some 80 verses of dense packed uh, uh, legal text, the kind of thing the lawyers could uh, argue interminably. Uh, but since we don't have that kind of time, we just have 35 minutes. I've got to uh, look at this text uh, summarily. And, and what I want, to, I want to do three things. Number one, I want to show the relationship between this block of legislation and the material that precedes it. Uh, that, of course, is the uh, Ten Commandments. The second thing, I, I want to look at just one tenet of the law. It's all we have time for this morning. And draw out what I believe is the underlying principle of, in all the law. And third, I want to consider the implications of this passage, because after all, uh, this is an ancient law code. It's 3,500 years or more uh, back in antiquity. It's as, almost as old as Hammurabi's code, and we wonder what relationship do we have to this uh, material. Now let's talk a little bit about the relationship to the uh, Ten Commandments uh, first. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, which you've been looking at for the last two weeks, are Israel's moral law, and they're very few in number. Only ten words, really, is the way the uh, Hebrew text itself puts it, because there are ten ideas, ten concepts that are enshrined in the, in the Ten Commandments. Uh, and only ten. And they're very terse, very, uh, very clipped, very short. Um, in Deuteronomy 5, where the law is restated, there is an interesting footnote to these commandments. The ten are given again, and then Moses says, These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly uh, there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. In other words, this is it. If you want to know the moral law, and he's not talking about speed laws and civil laws here, but the moral law, if you want to know if Israel wanted to know what to do and what to avoid, this is it. These compact statements of moral principles. So then what is this material that follows? Because obviously there's a great deal of law that comes after. Well, the first verse of chapter 21 says, These are the judgments. It's a technical word that means decisions. What follows is an explanation, a definition, an application of the Ten Commandments to specific situations in life. Now, now this is what, what uh, lawyers call case law. 
This is law that's worked out in, uh, through judicial process. You'll notice it's even stated differently. The Ten Commandments are stated as absolute uh, categorical, uh, categorical imperatives. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. These laws are stated differently. They're stated like conditional clauses. If something happens, then this is the penalty. So what you have here is a working out of the law through actual social uh, situations. Now let me give you an illustration. Uh, let's suppose uh, you and I lived back in those times and, and uh, we were hunting along the Jordan River. Uh, there was a good deal of big game in those days in the thickets along the Jordan. And so we're out hunting and uh, I see something moving in the bush and I think it's a bear and I shoot and it's you and I kill you. Uh, the concept of justice in the ancient world was very rough. What would happen is that your family would appoint someone who's called a goel. The word means returner. In other words, someone who sets things right, who restores order, who makes things even. Sort of the origin of the idea, don't get mad, get even. Uh, he's, he is the goel who, who comes to my house and he kills me. And then he probably kills two or three members of my family to make the point that you don't kill members of our family. Now, that's, you know, there were no prisons, there, were, there was no peace, uh, there, were, there were no peace officers, so this is the way justice was dealt out. It's reminiscent, really, of our early history in the, here in the United States. In Appalachia, you probably know the story of the Hatfields and the McCoys. That's the way they settled uh, their issues. Uh, the whole thing started over an argument uh, about who owned a Razorback hog, and the McCoys ended up killing some Hatfields, so the Hatfields killed some McCoys. It's the law of retaliation. They just get even, take revenge. Now, that's the way things were done in the ancient world. Now, look, at, look at Israel's law. Uh, verse 12, chapter 21, verse 12. Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall be surely put to death. See, the, the law establishes that it is a crime, it is a sin, it is always wrong to deliberately take the life of an innocent human being. And the penalty in this law was uh, capital punishment. However, if he doesn't do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, interesting uh, way of looking at the providence of God, no chance, it's not happenstance. God permits someone to fall in. It's an accident, you see, we would say. He is to flee to a place I will designate. But anyone who strikes a man and, and kills him shall surely be put to death. Now, I, I just want you to consider the fairness, the even-handedness of this law in the face of what was actually going on in the culture around them. Number one, what, what I would do if I killed you is to flee to one of these sanctuaries. In time, it developed. First, it was the uh, it was the tabernacle, then it was the temple, and then Israel established three cities of refuge: three on on the east side of Jordan, three on the west side of Jordan. Actually, six total to which you could flee if you killed someone, and that gave people a, a chance to cool down. Their passions could abate, and they could begin to look at this thing more dispassionately and more justly. Now, that's utterly unknown in the ancient world, that, that provision. And yet in Israel, if I killed you or you killed me, the first thing you would do is to run to a sanctuary where you would be protected for a time, and then a legal process could begin to develop. They, uh, you noted from the text that I just read, read, essentially, defined homicide the same way we do today in terms of, of first-degree murder, which is premeditated murder, and then secondly, uh, 
what we would call second-degree murder, a crime of passion. You simply get angry and hit someone with a rock or your fist and you kill them. And then third, there's manslaughter. And once they're in the sanctuary, you would have a chance to go through this process and determine not only the guilty act, but the guilty mind. That's always important in law. It was a logical, careful, uh, very humane uh, process. Now, again, there's nothing like that anywhere else in the ancient world. I, I have in my library a book about that thick uh, by a professor at Princeton, a fellow by the name of Pritchard. It's called Ancient Near Eastern Texts. And part of it is given over to uh, collecting all of the law codes of the ancient world, Syrian, Babylonian, uh, Persian, and so forth. And uh, it's been many, many years, but when I was a student, I had to read through all that material. And I can tell you, there's simply nothing in there that corresponds to the humane nature of Israel's law. Why? Because Israel recognized that people are special. We're created in the image of God. We're more like God than any other being on the face of the earth. We can understand. We can reason. Uh, we can communicate. So that, that we can talk to God and He can talk to us. We can hear His words and we can respond to Him. Uh, one ancient Christian saint has pointed out that God appears to be very lonely. He wants companionship. And so He created us so that we can have that kind of, of relationship with Him. So we're special. We're not like anything else in the world. And therefore, we need to be treated in a special way. And Israel's law preserved those ideas. They're, they're unique. There's nothing like them anywhere else uh, in, in the ancient world. Now, uh, since this is case law, as lawyers say, it had to be built up over the centuries, which means that this giving of the law at Sinai was not Israel's first acquaintance with the law. The law was codified at Sinai, that it was written down. But from the very beginning, from the time of the patriarchs, these laws were known and the implications of these laws developed over time as the Spirit of God led the people of God to apply these, these Ten Commandments fairly. Uh, interesting verse in Genesis 26 where the promises made to Abraham to bless the world are made over to his son Isaac. As you know, Abraham was called out of Ur the Chaldees, brought down into Canaan, and given the mandate to bring blessing to the world, to touch people with the life of God, uh, to, to preach the gospel, if I can put it that way, of, of, the, of the love of uh, God. And in concert with that, Abraham was to live a certain kind of life, and God told him what that life would be like, what he was to do and, and what he was to avoid. Uh, in this passage in, 20, in Genesis 26, God says, I'll make your descendants, he's speaking to Isaac, as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on the earth will be blessed. All the Gentiles will be blessed through Israel's, uh, through Isaac's descendants. Because, listen, Abraham obeyed me. Literally, he heard my voice. God spoke to Abraham face to face and revealed these laws to him and kept my requirements. That's the word that means the obligations of the covenant. My command, same word that's used for the Ten Commandments. My decrees, it's a word for things that are carved and other things that are inscribed. So it was even codified in Abram's time. They were beginning to write these laws down. And my laws, that's the word Torah. It comes from a Hebrew word, Yarah, that means to point. To point someone to the right direction morally. And my point is that from the very beginning, 
When God began to, to set in motion his program to bring salvation to the world, he revealed these, these extraordinary laws to his people, first the patriarchs and then to the nation. And then when he brought them out of Egypt, he brought them back into the land. And, and Moses, in one of his sermons at, at the very end of his life, when they were on the plains of Moab, just waiting to move into to Canaan, Moses said, See, I've taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you're entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. Listen, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, to the Gentiles, who will hear about all these decrees, decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a, is a wise and understanding people. I've pointed out before that, that Canaan was the crossroads of the world. If anyone wanted to travel anywhere in the world, they had to travel pretty much through the king's highway that went right through north and south through, through the land of Canaan so that the Israelites were in contact with the Gentile world almost on a daily basis. And as they moved through this part of the world, they would come in contact with these people who were so fair and who were so just in their laws. And they would marvel at the justice that they brought into their, their society. Why? To get a hearing for the gospel. So people would understand the greatness of God. Now, I want to look at one specific law. Uh, I could look at many, but we don't have time. I want to talk about this business of slavery which is the first law that's, that's considered in this uh, section. Well, actually not the first, but one of the first. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 11. Um, I guess the question is, why, why didn't God just free all the slaves? Why not emancipate them? Why laws governing slavery? Well, it's a very complex Issue. It's very much like the immigrant uh, issue today. What do we do with undocumented workers? You know, we put them all in jail. We send them all back. Do we incorporate them into our economy? What do, what do we do? There don't seem to be any easy answers. It's also very similar to the problem that missionaries have when they go into a culture where, where polygamy is practiced. What happens when people begin to trust Christ in a culture like that and you have multiple wives and, and children by multiple wives and how are you going to handle that problem? You say, just get rid of all your wives. You can only have one wife. What happens to all these women who get unloaded on the economy? They can't support themselves. They often are separated from their children. So it's very unkind and unjust to just put them out of your house. So how do you deal with it? Lucy Shaw, in one of her poems, has a marvelous phrase, the grace of gradual illumination, she says. What, did, what God did was to take the concept of slavery and so humanize it that eventually uh, the, the idea was, was dismissed. Now notice what he does. Israel's law, I'm not going to read uh, the actual text. Uh, it's Exodus 21, 2 and following. But what Israel's law did is regulated the conditions under which slavery existed. And on your own, you should read through this perhaps this week. In the first place, no one, no one could be a slave more than six years. You were, you were emancipated after six years. You were set free. No strings attached. Uh, secondly, uh, on the Sabbath, everybody rested. Not just your master, but, but servants, slaves, and animals. See, uh, 
Every other culture in that part of the world was structured hierarchically. The, the strata ran horizontally. There were the wealthy, the upper class, and then there were slaves. And there were probably more slaves in the ancient world than there were freemen. And uh, this was the leisurely class. They, you know, particularly in later in the Greco-Roman world, they gave themselves to contemplation and the games. That's all they did. And the slaves did all the work. But in Israel's economy, the the, the society is structured vertically. Everybody worked. It was an agrarian civilization. Everybody worked in the fields. Master worked alongside the slaves. He endured the same hardships, and everybody took off on the on the seventh day of the week on the Sabbath. Everybody. Slaves and animals, a little nice note of humanity, even extended uh, to animals. Again, that's something that was unique. Treatment of female slaves is extraordinary. In the ancient world, in Assyria and and, uh, uh, Babylon, Persia, uh, men very often enslaved women in that they would buy a wife and she would become a legitimate wife, but nevertheless a slave. And at the end of that period of time, if, you know, if she's gotten older and she's not attractive, you would sell her into slavery to someone else, usually abject slavery at this point, or just kick her out of the house. And again, she couldn't support herself. And as you read this law, you'll see that it says you can't do that to women. You can't do that. You have to provide, you know, if you take another wife, he doesn't, doesn't say take one. He doesn't commend that that approach. But if a person does take another wife, you cannot mistreat the wife you have. You have to feed her, you have to clothe her, you have to give her her conjugal rights. You cannot mistreat her. And again, in a culture where women were chattel, they were nothing. That's extraordinary. Why? Because women are significant, just as males are significant. And they're to be cared for. They're to be loved. Furthermore, Israel's law was the only law that held a master accountable for the treatment of his slave. You could not beat your slave unmercifully. You could not kill your slave. Uh, I'll give you an illustration. Suppose in the uh, Super Bowl next week the breath makes a bad call, and it makes you so mad you get a baseball bat and smash your TV set. That's probably not smart because you missed the second half. But, <laughs> but nobody's going to put you in jail because that's your property. If you want to smash it, you can. And that's the way they treated their slaves. You could break their legs. You could kill them. It's a woman. You could rape them. They had no rights, absolutely no rights at all. In Hammurabi's code, it's the upper class that has the rights. The slaves had nothing. And yet this law says you cannot treat a slave that way. You can't treat a human being that way because they're made in the image of God. Now, what, what is the principle of the thing? What is it that under you can take every one of these laws, and yes, there are difficulties. There appear to be crudities in the law. Uh, Augustine, in, in, in his confession, says that one of the things that kept him from becoming a Christian for a long time was what he considered to be the harshness of, of the law. Augustine was a philosopher before he was a Christian, although his mother was, was, a, was a devout Christian. And uh, these, these things in the law bothered him. But what he was trying to do is compare the law in his time with the law in the ancient world. And what he didn't realize, and later uh, says in so many words, the law in his time, even the secular Greco-Roman law, was the result of these more compassionate laws that God revealed to Israel. So you can't compare these laws with our laws today because our laws are the result of these laws. They established a trajectory toward a more loving society that is that's realized in, in our communities today here in 
in, in the West. But so we have to ask ourselves, what is it that softened these laws? What's the principle underlying them? Uh, uh, as you know, I'm an avid fan of George MacDonald. I've been reading his novel about David Elgenbrod, his wonderful, wise uh, old Scot. And he says to his young friend Hugh, it seems to me that the best of a rule is not to make ye able to do a thing, but to lead ye to what makes the rule right, to the principle of the thing. So now what is it that make, makes these rules, if we can call them that, right? What is the principle of the thing? Well, Jesus himself answers that question. Uh, in Matthew 22, there's a story of the lawyer, the expert in the law, the one who'd been trained in, in rabbinic schools. He comes to Jesus to test him. And he says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, there, there are a number of different ways to say which in the Greek language, but the word that he happened to choose means of what sort. In other words, what is the most significant law? How can I advance the kingdom of God? That's the idea. What's the most strategic law? Jesus answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. That is, it's of the same nature. The two are really one. You shall love your neighbors yourself. So what is the principle? To love God with all your heart, your soul, and all your mind, and to love your neighbor with all your heart and all your soul and your mind. That's the principle that, that you find under all the law. Paul says the same thing. The entire law is summed up in one sentence. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says again in Romans 13, let no debt remain outstanding. We shouldn't continue to owe anyone anything except love. We're always indebted to one another. We always owe love to each other. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Love does, does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So if you take the time to look through these laws, you find some wonderfully compassionate expressions of love. Don't leave open cisterns in your, on your property because animals and little children can fall in. Build parapets on the roof of your house. They, you know, they had flat-topped houses. He says, build a banister up there so people don't fall off at night or little children don't, don't toddle off the edge and, and kill themselves. If you borrow something, pay it back. Give it back in better shape that, that, than it was given. If you lose it or you break it, replace it. If, if someone's animal is loose, bring it, take it back. Even if it's your enemy, that's the interesting thing. He says if you see an ox fall in a pit and it's your enemy's uh, ox, take the animal out of the pit and bring it back to your enemy. If that's not loving your enemies, I don't, I don't know what is. And if your sheep uh, get into your neighbor's uh, field and, 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 and ruin the grass, which you do for cattle uh, people, then pay for that. Give reparation. Uh, even, even animal. It's interesting the, the approach that the Old Testament law takes to animals. One which is, uh, scholars have never been able to figure out is this idea of seething a kid in its mother's milk. In other words, boiling a, a lamb in its mother's milk. And they've tried to find that uh, practice in ancient cultures and Baal worship and so forth. They can't find it anywhere. 
They don't know exactly why it's there. My best guess is it just seems cruel to take the milk that would nourish a little lamb and boil that lamb in the milk. I think it's a, it's a cry for animal rights. and They certainly don't have the rights that human beings do because they're not created in the image of God. But one of the ways that we show love in our culture is, is, to, is to love little, little people and love lambs and, and other, other animals, dogs, whatever, cats, I guess. I have trouble with cats, but... <laughs> You know, just it's important to be kind. That's it. It's important to be tender, see? because that's one of the ways we, we show love. Now, my, uh, we've covered two uh, points, and I'm talking so fast, my mind needs to catch up. Here now. Um, the third point I want to make is, is our relationship to these laws. So what? Uh, that's an important question. I uh, Last time I was up here, I pointed out that the purpose of all Bible teaching is to lead us to love God and love our neighbor. And if it doesn't do that, we've missed the point. So here we are looking at laws, ancient laws, and we wonder what, what implication do they have for us. Well, I want to say as clearly and as unequivocally as I can, this is not our law. We are not under any law in the Old Testament. Not one letter, not one syllable, not one word, not one sentence, not one verse. Nothing in the Old Testament is our law. Now, uh, Jeremiah predicted that. 600 years before Christ, speaking for the Lord, he said, the time is coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. That's the covenant at Sinai. That's the old covenant. 600 years before Jesus, Jeremiah the prophet predicted that that covenant would be vitiated, be done away with. There would be a new covenant. And the writer of Hebrews commenting on that uh, very statement says by calling this covenant new there's the new covenant he has made the first one that is the old covenant obsolete and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear he's speaking from the standpoint of jeremiah jeremiah said this thing's already old about ready to die and when jesus came it died the old covenant was done away. See, if we don't do that, then we end up with this kind of hodgepodge of laws. We take a few out of the Old Testament, a few in the New Testament, try to put them together. And Jesus warned us again, doing that, so you cannot put new wine in old wineskins. It just tears. You spoil them both. So you can't mix the new covenant and the old covenant. See, that's why we divide the Bible into two parts. There is the Old Testament and the New Testament. And testament means Covenant. We get our word covenant from French. We get our word testament from Latin. We could just as very well call the first 39 books of the Bible the Old Covenant and the last 27 books of the Bible the New Covenant. And we'd be talking about the same thing, you see. Now, uh, the New Testament does three things with the Old Covenant. In some cases, it simply rescinds the laws. For example, the, the dietary laws. Uh, I remember the story of Peter on the roof, and down came the sack full of all kinds of animals, clean and unclean. 
And a voice from heaven said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, Never eaten anything unclean in my life. And the voice, which is the voice of Jesus, said, Peter, don't call unclean what I've called clean. In other words, the dietary laws are passe. They're gone. You don't need to worry about it. eating an ossifrage. You can eat an ossifrage if you want to. Some kind of owl, I don't think you want to eat it. But, uh, you know, that the dietary laws no longer pertain to us. The, the, the New Testament has rescinded them. Uh, in other cases, it replaces the Old Testament laws with their spiritual counterpart. The sacrifices, for example. We don't have to offer lambs anymore because, as the book of Hebrews makes it explicitly clear, Jesus has fulfilled all of those commands. He was the lamb that was sacrificed. So we no longer need to to be under that uh, Israel's cult that is their system of of worship because we have the the Lamb of God that all of these sacrifices look forward to. And the Sabbath, for example, the Sabbath is done away. Paul makes that very clear. You can worship on any day of the week. You can worship on Tuesday morning if you want to or Saturday night or Friday afternoon. One day is as good as any other day because we don't worship on one day. We worship 24-7. Our Sabbath is a, is a Sabbath rest that continues every day, all day. Okay. Hebrews, again, makes that, that very clear. So the New Testament either puts the old law away completely or it, it revisits them and shows us the spiritual implication of those laws or it restates them. See, most of the Ten Commandments, with the exception of the Sabbath law, are restated clearly and specifically. Uh, in the New Testament. So we're not free because we're free from the law. We're not free to say, we, I, you know, I'm living in grace. I can do as I please. No, no, th- those commands are, are there and they're restated. And to be perfectly frank, they're restated in a way in which they're much more stringent than before because they touch matters of the heart. Right? Now, you have an inkling of that in the law when the law says don't covet. Paul said that's the one that killed him. Couldn't deal with that one. But the New Testament treatment of the Old Testament law is much more stringent even than that. For example, read the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the uh, Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus said, it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even have the thought in your mind, the intention in your mind, it's the same thing as, as the act. He moves it down into the realm of the heart and the attitude. Uh, what about murder? Jesus said, if, if you look at another person and you hate them or you call them a fool, interesting word. It, it actually means worthless. In other words, if you deny the fact that that person is deeply significant, that that person is made in the image of God, that that person, whoever he or she is, is deeply loved by God, it's the same thing as murdering him, you see. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's a law of retribution. But I say to you, if somebody hits you on one side, they turn the other. So the law, it's made over again to the church. We are now the new people of God. The Jew and Gentile now have been combined into one, that entity that the New Testament calls the church, not this building, but the people of God. And we have a new covenant, which is spelled out for us, in the New Testament. Uh, slavery is another case in point. I 
ask myself, how do I treat those that serve me? I don't have any slaves, but people serve me all day. Clerks, waiters, waitresses. Do I give them needless trouble? Do I make demands? Am I rude, picky, discourteous? Do I teach my children to be respectful to those that serve him? Do I show appreciation to those who serve? See? Those are all matters of the uh, heart. Incidentally, <clears throat> I don't know if I'd have time to do this, but it struck me this morning that uh, the book of Philemon is a perfect example of how the law changed slavery, emancipated the slaves. If you know the book of Philemon, it was written by Paul, and it was written to uh, his friend Philemon, who is in some city we're not sure, might, might be led to see us somewhere in what today is Turkey. And the reason he wrote it is because uh, Philemon's slave Onesimus had fled to Rome. He ran away from home, and he fled to Rome, and he apparently got, got caught and put into prison. And he's being held there in order to be sent back to his master. And he came in contact with Paul, led Paul into Christ. And so Paul writes this wonderful letter. You ought to read it. He writes this wonderful letter to Philemon. He says, hey, I've got your servant Philemon here. But he said, he's no longer your servant. He's your dear brother in Christ. And he plays on his, his name. His name means useful. And he said, he used to be useless, but now he's true to his name. He's, he's useful. See? And he goes back as far as we know. Well, 50 years later, Ignatius, one of the early Christians, was on his way to Rome to be martyred, and he goes to the city of Smyrna, and he writes a letter to the church in, uh, in Ephesus. And he says, Greet your bishop, Onesimus. He's dearly loved by his people. See? What happened to Onesimus? He came to Christ. He went back to his master. He served him apparently faithfully. In time was freed. Perhaps Philemon just saw the injustice of keeping this brother in slavery, and he set him free, and he eventually became the bishop of the church in Ephesus. Now that's what love uh, does. Love works no ill for its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, Onesimus, according to tradition, is also the man who collected Paul's writings. We wouldn't have a New Testament if it weren't for Onesimus. Now, I, I want to conclude by just making a couple of remarks. I see three strata in the New Covenant. The first is the moral law. As I said, the Ten Commandments are restated in a much more intense form. Uh, the demands of the law are incredible. Much, much higher than the Old Testament law. As a matter of fact, they're impossible. No one has ever uh, kept the law. Do you love as Jesus loves you? No, I, <laughs> I don't. And I doubt that any of us have ever loved as Jesus loves us. But that's the standard. See? Love as I have loved you. But there are two other strata that run all the way through the Old and New Testament. One is forgiveness and the other is enablement. And when we fail, there's this wonderful, wonderful provision for forgiveness. If you read on through this covenant to the end, you get to chapter 24, and uh, uh, Moses brings the law to the people, and he presents it to them, and, and he says, These, this is your covenant. 
And in a, a, a sort of blast of egotism, they say, we'll do it. And Moses' next act was to sacrifice an animal and sprinkle the book and sprinkle the people with blood. That's always a picture of forgiveness. In other words, before they even set out to try to keep the law, they were forgiven. Now, that's the Old Testament, not the New Testament. How much more can we expect that sort of forgiveness from our Lord into the New Covenant? So that before we even set out to love as Jesus loves us, we're forgiven. <laughs> we, we cannot out the grace of God. That's the point. The other thing is enablement. We have within us the indwelling Spirit of God who is there to strengthen us to do what He has called us to do. And there's even a hint of that under the Old Covenant. Now, uh, please don't take this for gospel and don't take it to the bank, but I've gotten, I just have an idea that's been playing around in my mind for about 30 or 40 years. And, and I don't share it with many people, okay? So you're, you're, you're special. <laughs> You know, most people think of the law as huge tablets like this, you know, like, like the monument that was in the park. Who in the more could carry those things around? Yeah. They're actually quite small. When I was a student, I had a chance to work on some of these little tablets. And, and they're about the size of a, of a slice of bread. They're about that wide, except they're like a pillow, and they're about that high, something you can hold in your hand. Because the scribe held it in his hand. He had this little wedge-shaped thing, this little stylus, and that's how he made, made the imprints on these, on these uh, tablets. That's what, that's what they look like. You could put an amazing amount of material on one, on one tablet. I mean, whole stories, myths are found because the cuneiform is very, very small. Okay? Why two tablets then for ten laws? You could put 50, 75 laws the size of the Ten Commandments on one of these, one of these tablets. And yet we're told that when Moses came down from the mountain, he had two tablets in his hands. And they put those two tablets in the ark. They ne uh, Jackson, I think, a couple of weeks ago mentioned that they were never mounted anywhere as a monument. They're hidden away in the ark in, in, in the heart of God. Okay? Why two tablets? Well, because, believe it or not, in ancient times, the uh, commerce was carried out exactly the same way it is today. If you write a contract, you make two copies. One party keeps one one copy and the other keeps another copy. And they know this because they found these duplicate copies in, in libraries. You understand what, the, what this means? That God simply wrote two copies of the Ten Commandments and he put both of them in the ark. He didn't give you one and say, do it, and then I'm going to check up and see that you do it. He said, I'm going to see to it that you keep those commandments. That's why Paul says, what the law could not do, see, just, just the bare law staring you in the face saying, do it. Uh, what the law could not do, and then it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law, get this, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You see, you want to grow in, in love? then ask for it. See, it's prayer that turns truth into action. It's prayer that moves the moral law into our heart and enables us to do it. So we ask for it. Do you, do you need love for someone who's 
He's very awkward, very difficult, very hard to love. Just ask for it. It doesn't come immediately, and there will be failures. But when there's failure, you've already been sprinkled by the blood. So don't worry about it. Let's move on. Because in God's time, in God's way, he will bring you to the place that you can show love to that, to that person. And I have a final note, and we must uh, move on. In the Old Testament, when the son asked his father, what is with these laws? Why do I have to keep these laws? His father did not say, because God said so. What he did was tell him the story of the Exodus. Do you understand why? Because he wanted his boy to know that we love because God first loved us. The obedience of love is the gift we give to God because of all he's given to us. And I think of that little chorus. After all he's done for me, after all he's done for me, how can I do less than give him my best and live for him completely after all he's done for me? Let's pray. Uh, Lord, when it comes to keeping the law, we're all abject failures. But we thank you for that grace, that abounding, extraordinary, amazing grace that forgives and enables us to make whatever progress you have prepared for us. We want to walk in the truth. More than anything else, we want to learn to be more loving, more kind, more thoughtful, more considerate, more tender people because we realize that we owe this to one another and that you have called us and given us uh, the ability to do this. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we want to prepare our heart for the Lord's Supper. I would like to begin by reading a section from Luke 22, which is Luke's account of the upper room in the and this supper that took place there. Uh, Luke says, After taking the cup, Jesus gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink it again. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. May I remind you that the kingdom of God has come. It's here. His invisible kingdom is here. He reigns as king. Whatever you believe about Israel in the future, it's very clear from the New Testament that the kingdom of God is here, and the Lord Jesus is our king. Jesus said in this passage he would not, again, drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom had come. So he's here in our midst, sharing this supper uh, with us. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is to be poured out for you. Uh, His sacrifice ratified the covenant, made it over to us. But the very next verse reads, And, not but, but and, the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. In other words, Judas was sitting at that table when Jesus said, This cup represents my blood that will be shed to ratify the new covenant for you. And I wouldn't doubt that he looked directly at Judas because he knew what Judas was up to. 
So that tells me it's never too late. No one has ever gone too far. No one is ever outside the grace of our Lord Jesus. And perhaps that's the way you feel this morning. If so, as you share this table with with our Lord, He's here in our presence. Just know that He's saying this to you. This is the blood. This is the death. Death is always represented as the shedding of blood. This is the death by which I ratified the new covenant so that you can be a part of the new Israel, the new people of God. It's Paul's explanation for what happened in the upper room. It's very interesting that uh, Paul, of course, was not there. And when he writes, he tells us that he received from the Lord what happened in the upper room. In the book of Galatians, uh, Paul argues over and over again that he learned nothing from the apostles theologically. When he went down to talk to Peter, they went down to talk about Peter's history. He wanted to know how Peter came to Christ, but they didn't talk theology because Paul didn't need to. He'd been taught by the Lord himself. That's why he could say, I receive from the Lord that which you also receive from the apostles. And uh, in this section, he commends the Corinthians for their worship, their propriety in worship. But he says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I, I believe it. See, what had happened in Corinth is that church has been torn apart by bitterness and resentment and hatred and uh, gossip. It was, a church, it was a very much a troubled church. And that's why Paul says, I, I believe it, that there are differences among you. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. You're not sharing in his life, in his new covenant, in this new relationship and the power that goes with it. And he goes on to say, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a verbatim. From Luke's gospel, but he didn't get it from Luke's gospel. He got it from our Lord. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. That is, you remember his dying. And what's called for as a result. He gave his life for us. We must give our life for others. That's what love is. Therefore, Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will will be guilty of sinning against the the body and blood of the Lord. Now, the way that passage is usually uh, explained is that if you're a non-Christian here, please don't participate in the Lord's table. But that's not what Paul is saying. If you look at the context carefully, he's, he's addressing Christians. That you see, that that was the problem in Corinth. That. That was what made their eating and drinking unworthy. They were full of gossip and, and, and disgust for each other. They didn't want to love each other. They didn't want to care for each other. They were angry. They were, they were bitter. They were carrying grudges. And Paul says, that, that's, that's, it would be unworthy of you to take place at the Lord's table if those feelings are, are in your heart, say. So we need to take this seriously. If there's someone that you hold a grudge against, or someone you're angry at and they know it, someone that, 
that you can't forgive, that needs to be dealt with in our heart before we move on. It can be done with, with a simple request, forgive me, Lord. And then perhaps reparation is required to go to that person if they've been wronged and set things, set things right. Let's consider that. See, that's what Paul says when he says, consider these things. Think about these things. Let's take the bread uh, together. Thank you for your body that was broken for us. A death that we need to remember. A love that we can never forget. We pray in Jesus' name. Our Lord said, taking the uh, goblet in his hand, this represents the blood of the new covenant, the death by which the new covenant is ratified. When you do this, he said, remember me. Let's take it in that spirit. Can you stand, please? Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his grace, to him be power and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please don't forget the uh, retiring offering on the way out. It's another opportunity to, uh, to hug people that, that are in need. God bless you.